to discuss workers in Bessemer, Alabama, attempting to unionize an Amazon facility and why this galvanized worldwide media attention, I spoke to reporter Lauren Cowrie Gurley, a senior staff writer at Motherboard Vice's tech website. I discussed with Lauren her reporting on Bessemer, what workers there wanted, how they attempted to unionize their Amazon facility, how Amazon, through methods both straightforward and duplicitous, attempted to ensure that this unionization effort would fail, and if in going against monopolies like an Amazon, should we consider both legal and illegal methods of unionizing, organizing, and worker direct actions to confront the control and domination companies like Amazon have not only over the lives of workers, but over the lives of so many global citizens in how Amazon shapes our economy and our lives. It's a very interesting conversation that touches upon unionization, abolition, tensions between conservative and radical wings of left-wing thought, and of course, most importantly, what workers on the ground in Bessemer wanted and where they go from here. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. We have a great episode with Eli Friedman of Cornell University on China delivery driver Meng Zhu and his attempts to organize food delivery workers in China before being arrested. And you can go to our main website, asiaarttours.com. We have wonderful print interviews on a variety of topics. I'd highly recommend our interview with Jared Shanahan, which looks at capitalism, abolition, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Here's my conversation now on attempts to unionize Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama with Lauren Kyrie Gurley. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Hi, my name is Lauren Kaori Gurley. I am a senior staff writer at Vice's Motherboard, which is Vice's tech website. To start, what did the workers want and why did they feel they needed a union to get it? Yeah, so this is what they call a hot shop, hot shop organizing. So the workers in Bessemer actually approached the union. It wasn't the other way around where the union was like, oh, we need to organize Amazon workers. And this, this warehouse in Bessemer opened in late March 2020. So it was brand new. It opened up during the pandemic and a group of workers um, approached the union, which is the retailers union, retail wholesale and department store union, which is headquartered in New York City, um, because uh, they were very concerned about um, sort of disciplinary issues and um, other uh, rules and like sort of inconsistent guidelines that were causing them to um, be so, the way that Amazon was forcing them to be so productive um, that there wasn't time for bathroom breaks, that disciplinary disciplinary guidelines would be sort of enforced, um, what felt like arbitrarily 
um, that, you know, like by the time you got to your car for your break, you, you had to turn around because it was so far away and your break is so short. Um, the fact that, you know, people are being tracked for time off task. Um, so basically they're constantly being surveilled by, by Amazon. Um, a scanner tracks how productive they are. Um, so it really just felt like they were being the, they were really being the productivity, their productivity was being squeezed by Amazon to the extent that people felt like um, they weren't, like weren't sort of being given like their basic human needs weren't being met. Um, and I think uh, for that reason, um, combined with what was going on with COVID, right? So um, Amazon made, or Jeff Bezos made a hundred billion dollars um, in 2020, um, while um, you know people are working all across the country, including in Bessemer, um, as massive COVID outbreaks um, are are happening in their communities. Um, and, and Amazon goes and cuts off $2 an hour hazard pay. This is in May of 2020, um, after the pandemic had only you know, been happening for about two months. And they also cut off unlimited unpaid time off, which was something that a lot of workers were using who were maybe immunocompromised or had family members who are elderly people that they were taking care of at home um, and they couldn't risk um, sort of exposing people. They cut off those things. Everyone had to go back to work. Um, and so I think that also seeing that, that disparity um, between how well Amazon was doing and what was happening on the ground in the warehouse sort of galvanized a lot of organizing, not just in Bessemer, but around the United States. But that was definitely sort of a, part of the thing that brought workers toward or, or that sort of triggered workers to organize around these other issues that are not unique to Bessemer, but have also been going on, um, these productivity issues that have been going on around the country for years or around the world, really. But something I do get uncomfortable with and I don't hear talked a lot about on podcasts, a lot of the workers in Bessemer were black. And I feel like a lot of these union conversations um, at times take on uh, in the media a white savior complex where you have the concerned host talking to the diligent reporter about these hardworking black and brown workers in an Amazon shop or a chicken processing plant or um, on the front lines against Proposition 22. And just at the start, to fill our the rest of our conversation with existential dread, in the really great reporting that you and Edward have done, how do you see sort of a future of America where what's happening at Bessemer is what's going to be happening to every one of us unless we take more of a stand against, you know, the people now who are being affected who very soon could very well be us? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think jobs are going in one of two directions it's like everyone's becoming an amazon worker and then on the other end everyone's becoming a gig worker and driving for uber so you're sort of seeing um full-time work um like by big retailers or companies like amazon um becoming increasingly precarious um whereas you know maybe in the earlier part of the 20th century you had 
um, unions there. And then on the flip side, you're seeing, or on the other side, you're also seeing like, yeah, the, the gigification, or I don't know if that's the term people use of, of these, uh, these platforms that, you know, you know, people used to be taxi drivers and there were all sorts of jobs that were regular employment was going on. And, and now they're, they're, um, they are being turned into um, sort of independent contractor jobs where workers really have no, zero rights or benefits. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm very concerned about that. Um, I think that uh, just watching sort of Amazon expand, which it went on the largest hiring spree of its corporate history, I believe this past year they hire I mean they have more than a million employees in the United States or in the in the world um, and they hired 400,000 new employees in the United States I believe last year um, I mean yeah I think that uh, it's a huge problem I guess I would push back on the part that I or that you know the professional managerial class isn't important here because they are also working for these companies right um for Amazon, for Uber, for uh, tech companies. And I think there is appetite to organize um, in tandem um, or you know, opportunities for solidarity that I think could become very strategically important um, in, in pushing back against some, some of these companies. I think they already have been, I mean, with Amazon, um, you had those two uh, employees, uh, Marin Costa and Emily Cunningham, um, who were fired uh, for organizing in solidarity with Amazon warehouse workers. Um, and the NLRB recently, the National Labor Board in the United States recently, um, uh, found that they were illegally fired by Amazon um, for for organi for their organizing work. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a lot of opportunity there for um, pushing back against what's going on with these jobs because you know, with the help or with the solidarity of of engineers. I don't know. Maybe you maybe you disagree with that. I don't like Adam Curtis uh, as much as I used to, but he said something I think that was really interesting. He said it for a while where a lot of this media coverage for a lot of issues that don't affect one directly, if they're of a certain class or political security, is what he called sort of, oh dear, where people will read a story, say, oh dear, and turn to the next page. And so uh, I'm always very focused on trying to highlight that what is happening to people at the lowest levels of society is coming for everyone. And that because of that, we need to see ourselves not in a hierarchy of charity, but in a horizontal solidarity with people uh, on the factory floor of Bessemer and, and so on. So that, that's more what I'm trying to highlight. Um, and anything that builds that solidarity, I'm all for. I just don't like a hierarchy, and I'm I'm just very cautious of of again that sort of oh dear logic that I think a lot of people do have, and it's important to 
to to raise and and deal with and wrestle with. Talking about me and Edwards reporting, I mean, we consciously, um, I mean, we we went into labor reporting, and I think we made a conscious effort that we wanted to cover what was going on um, on the what I would uh, this is maybe not the right term, but on the blue collar side of things, so gig workers, Amazon warehouse workers, instead of you know the the people in the corporate offices. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't know who reads our work and how it's how it's interpreted and whether it's sort of an oh dear like <laughs> response that people are having and moving on. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think that is what you're saying is why we sort of strategically decided to cover what we do cover and not cover some of the more white collar um, issues. Another question I, I had written out here that um, I don't see a lot is I have that image of Homer Simpson. I'm old enough to where I really love The Simpsons. And uh, it's Mr. Burns uh, hanging a picture in Homer's office that says, remember, you work here forever. And he famously plasters it with pictures of his baby daughter, Maggie, as the motivation for grinding out uh, his job at the nuclear power plant. Now, something I don't really understand and um, I see in passing, but I haven't actually talk to anyone about is what does it sort of feel like if we were like psychologically to enter into one of these plants what how does amazon like i wrote the shining here as well how does amazon try to try to make its workers take out everything that's independent take out everything that is you know not about amazon and just stuff them with with as much seem like amazon as they can um could you talk about uh, the propaganda that Amazon uses even before a union arrives to make people put up with these labor conditions that, quite frankly, are are brutal. I think to some degree, like, um, nowadays, a lot of workers are expected to sort of perform um, enthusiasm while they're doing their warehouse jobs. I mean, if you look at Amazon advertisements, um, they often like, I mean, there's a lot, there's, they have, there's, they've been running a whole, during the pandemic, they've been running a whole PR um, campaign to show how great it is to work in warehouses and like smiling workers and stuff like that. I think that's also what I hear is expected inside the warehouse. Like people are pissed off and angry, but like the people who are, um, come to work and, um, show that they're leaders and have positive attitudes. I don't know if you've seen or any of your listeners have seen um, Nomad Land, which has gotten a lot of criticism. I boot it. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. So, so those workers that they showed in that in that in that film um, were sort of happy and cheerleadery, and Amazon definitely values that and expects that. And there's a there's a, there are roles that they have called ambassadors um, in their warehouses that are um, selected by management, people who are. Um, supposed to cheerlead for the company and sort of provide constructive criticism to other workers on who are in their same jobs. These are these are roles that are like um, not compensated at a higher rates. It's like a promotion without you know, with more duties without you know any additional benefits or wages or perks. Um, so I think that like there's this thing that people are supposed to act like they love their jobs in the way that you're supposed to act like mm. you love a retail job <laughs> um, yeah. except 
who are you performing for? I don't know. It's just sort of like everyone in the warehouse is going around acting like things are great or supposed to do that. Um, I mean, in terms of the other stuff, I think that like discipline is, I mean, people get fired left and right for things that they didn't know were rules. Like um, in Bessemer, uh, someone was telling me that a, like a 19 year old guy ran under a conveyor belt and was fired. Um, and mm -hmm. apparently that's really dangerous, but like no one ever explained that this was something that you could be fired for. Um, so I think there's a lot of fear around like people go to work. I mean, I talk, talk to a lot of people in Bessemer who are like, I go to work every day, terrified that I'm going to be fired. So I'm sort of constantly being extremely vigilant and, um, you know, I'm very fearful of um, losing my job. So there's just also like sort of that factor, which I would say in some ways like works to strip people of their individuality. And then I think the other factor of stripping people of their individuality is like people are so isolated. It's a very, I mean, I talk to people who feel so lonely in those jobs, even though, you know, you're on a shift with hundreds of people at one time, um, you don't really, I mean, especially during COVID, like you're, you have, you keep your distance from other people. Um, you have your specific tasks that you're doing. It's often alone. You often don't talk to anyone for hours. You don't know who some people often don't know who their managers are, but you just rarely interact with your manager in a lot of these, um, more basic roles like picker, packer, stower. Um, and, um, you know, everything is about um, the, the way that they frame it is about individual success. And, and also, I, so I just think generally um, when you're working there, um, it, it feels very lonely and alienating. Um, and that also sort of, I mean, that the, the, the sort of conditions of the work environment, um, being alone, um, doing the same repetitive tasks over and over and over and over again, um, sort of strip people of their basic humanity, um, sort of in a way that that you're talking about. And this is not unique to Amazon. I mean, this has been going on what is like scientific management, where they um, sort of de-skill jobs and break them down into their most basic tasks and isolate people so that, you know, I mean, more skilled workers and workers who are in more in communication with each other have a better chance of organizing. Um, and and industrial, industrialists realized that back in the 1800s. So I think this is a continuation of that, um, what's going on at Amazon now. I was thinking, as you were talking about Baldwin, and Baldwin spoke to Nikki Giovanni a while ago, and he's he was talking a lot to Nikki about uh, how a lot of black men, at least in his day and age, felt so alienated from their work or their inability uh, to to have to force a smile that they, they came home and were just dead to their wives. And it's this wonderful conversation that he had with a, a, a black feminist leader at that time, Nikki Giovanni. And did any of the workers specifically connect their struggle to larger black freedom struggles. And as opposed to the language of civil rights, did they speak specifically about the sort of human rights that I'm talking to you about as, as a black man or black woman, that they have the right to dignity, free will, and voice in a country that's taken it uh, for so long and so often from black and brown people? Did, 
did this theme of sort of dignity and, and black freedom struggle and having the ability to be themselves as a black man or black woman at their jobs um, figure into any of the language from workers you spoke to? That's an interesting question. So not really. Like I talked to workers and asked them um, if it felt connected to a, a struggle for human rights or basic human dignity um, or, you know, a Black freedom struggle. And I think people really just wanted to focus on the, at least in the conversations I had, the working conditions themselves um, and how, I mean, there wasn't like a, how do I say this? There wasn't, in, in my conversations with workers, there wasn't a direct tie to race um, that came up that that felt like important. But it but it is the case that, yeah, this warehouse is 85% Black and 65% women. Um, and I think the union, which also has a lot of Black organizers, sort of used that very explicitly as their... Um, campaign sort of uh, messaging. Um, and it was definitely framed that way, I think, in a lot of like New York Times and a lot of other articles. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe I know that you're making a distinction here between like civil rights and Black freedom struggle. Um, I think um, that maybe the union didn't do. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I didn't think, I don't think the union necessarily made that distinction. Um, but it definitely mm -hmm. seems like that was their their messaging and sort of you know I mean the the lead organizer of the Amazon of, of this union drive was on the on the union staff side was white um, Joshua Brewer um, but he brought this up a lot um, and I maybe heard it less so from workers who were really just concerned with like this job is you know is killing me um, so make of that what you will. Um, but, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't hear that explicitly a lot from workers. I was very interested in reading. Um, so there's a non-union officiated, there's basically not a wildcat, not a wildcat strike, but basically we're not going to wait for a union. We're just going to organize movement happening in Chicago that had, uh, walkouts and has, I think, proven to be a thorn in the side of, Bezos's Chicago land empire. Um, and um, they were saying essentially the complete opposite of, of Joshua. And Joshua said, look, I'm going to listen to critique. So we're not critiquing Joshua's effort um, to union organize, to do any organizing is extremely hard work where you need to be extremely committed. Um, but it's important to think through what works and what doesn't. And so the organizer in Chicago in talking about Bessemer, and this was a Hispanic organizer, and they essentially said, look, the celebrities, no one cares. Danny Glover, no one cares. Media, no one cares. Like, the issues that, like, dominate a warehouse are like, can we turn the AC on in the summer? And that they, they really felt that there was far too much focus on celebrity and media. And uh, this sort of disconnect where you're saying, okay, the union was trying to phrase this as uh, black freedom struggle and the workers are saying, dude, this sucks. Like we can, talk, we can talk about that later, but I got arthritis. Like I got, I got, I got, I got kids to take care of. Um, how did you feel about this sort of disconnect? And I know that's a nebulous term, but how did you feel where, where were there disconnects, um, between 
the union organizing effort and the workers? And do you feel this sort of critique is a larger one the left or people who are progressive need to consider about, you know, you can write the articles, but if you really want to help, as as these organizers in Chicago say, focus on what is bothering the workers and all the other narratives can wait. Right, right. Yeah, um, I, I can say having reported on both what goes on in, with the, the organizing of the Amazonians United Chicagoland group and the Bessemer Warehouse Drive, their, their media strategies are very different and their willingness to engage on, you know, to, to work on stories and stuff is, is very different uh, with, with Bessemer organizers being much more willing to, um, you know, I don't know. I think that the media jumped on this story because they knew it was important. So I wouldn't say that I felt like I saw the union in, in Bessemer, RWDSU, like expending uh, or using wasting resources on on you know getting President Biden to make a statement or bringing in Bernie Sanders or whatever. Um, maybe that did happen. I I didn't necessarily. I, I, I guess I, I don't feel like I, I know enough to, to make that claim, but I do know that talking to, like you said, I do know that talking to workers in Bessemer, like, do you think it made a difference that Biden said what he did, um, you know, did did getting all of these in, like endorsements and, and fancy news articles and, and positive press, did it make a difference? Um, national press. Um, I think the answer was generally no. Um, people don't like Biden, some workers said, or like we'd hate Biden. Um, so, um, or like people don't care because yeah, like you said, I mean, there's a huge contingent of this warehouse that is 19 to 24 years old. I think those people um, were, what I heard from Joshua were the least likely to vote at all um, because they, you know, this is for them, this is just a paycheck. Amazon has super high turnover for them. This is just a short stop onto the next thing. So this is always, was, was always going to be a crappy job and they never had high expectations for it, let alone um, sort of the expectation to have a voice on the job with a union. Um, and so I think, yeah, no, people don't, really care. Um, I think what it, if it has any positive effect, I mean, people notice, but I just don't think it was ever going to swing the election and, and, and that people are, like you're saying, much more concerned with, with the bread and butter working conditions, getting those improved. Um, and, and so, I mean, that, that's a question I think about a lot. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I think it's important to cover the news and what's going on um, because that's our job. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I think Jane McAlevey also made the argument that um, the, the news coverage was actively detrimental to, to, the, to the union drive because it raised people's expectations in a way that was not realistic um, and sort of hyped up what was going on to the extent that um, uh, it made it seem like they were going to win when they really weren't. I think if you know anyone who was really paying attention though would have realized that this was like a, an, a, an uphill battle from day one and that it was going to be extremely hard for them um, to just outright win um, this first union drive at an Amazon warehouse in the United States ever. Um, and, 
and you know I, I have a lot of um I personally feel like the the coverage was very good a lot of the coverage was very good um and I don't necessarily feel like it I don't see how it actively um maybe harmed um the union drive itself I think um, one of the things it did, and, and this is not important to, to the union drive there, um, is that, you know, it, it inspire. I mean, other people read this, it inspires other Amazon warehouse workers around the country um, who, who, you know, realize what's going on and have actively reached out to, to the union. I mean, I know that more than a thousand am workers have, I don't know if they're specifically Amazon workers have, about organizing their workplaces. Um, so I don't necessarily see it all as negative. Like I think this Biden speech will definitely be used in um, organizing workers in the future um, and will be played again and again and again. I, I, I agree with maybe what you're saying that, that this didn't help Bessemer, you know, win, um, so. Well, I do want to ask one last question on this, and then we're going to turn back to Amazon. And I think it's an important question. So the organizers in Chicago, in their piece for Rampant, Rampant magazine, essentially said, look, and I do like this. I'm a big fan of the sort of Alexander, Alec, what is it? Uh, Alexander Conrad Doyle, the dog that doesn't bark, Sherlock Holmes. Whenever the New York Times is covering anything, I get weirded out. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I think that class interest is extremely real and it shapes a lot of what media will and won't cover or how it will cover issues. And what they said, and I'm going to pose this to you and you can take it however you want. I'm just interested in talking because I, I feel we hold a lot in at a time where we're nearing the apocalypse. And when the apocalypse comes, <laughs> we, we, we'll have all these regrets. So they said essentially look, it's very weird to us that there was all this coverage on this one union election that from the start, people were saying there were so many obstacles. Uh, COVID, you know, the, 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 the amount of resources Amazon could throw at this. And there's been very little coverage of workers uh, like Chicagoland where they're basically saying, we're not going to wait for a union. We're just going to organize. And this is the line of angry workers as well, too, where they are they dismiss i think what they see as fetishism of unions that you can organize you don't need a union necessarily um you can just start organizing in your community and go from there and i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that specific question is it something that maybe media can do a better job of when there was all this coverage directed at you know the the bessemer elections very little for something like Chicago. And in a future where like Jeff Bezos is getting more ripped by the second, like he's just doing bench presses nonstop and his bank account is getting as swole as he is. When we're dealing with, you know, an enemy as powerful as a Jeff Bezos or the police, and, and this is something, you know, like a Vicki Osterweil might say, or a Joy James, do we need to start sort of thinking about, you know, like, look, we can't wait for these legal protections when it's so difficult to get them. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that from the media angle. Is that something maybe the media should reflect on a bit more, covering extra-legal or illegal organizing? And what are your thoughts about illegal organizing in general? So I think, yes. Um, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of really successful organizing with the absence of a certified 
nationally or recognized um, union um, going on, like you said, in Chicago, in New York City, um, this group Amazonians United. So they have a branch in a warehouse in Queens and they have a branch in, I mean, now they have a number of, of they have their, their hands in a lot of warehouses in uh, Chicago, south side of Chicago, west side of Chicago. Um, and they also have organizing going on in, in some warehouses in Sacramento. Um, another example of this is uh, Whole Foods, this group Whole Worker um, that has been organizing for years now, um, especially during the pandemic and number of walkouts. Um, they are, you know, organizing and getting um, what they feel like are, you know, real, real gains and, and without, without, without a formal union structure. Um, this group organizes on Telegram, which is the encrypted messaging app, and they have members all over the country. Similar thing going on at Target with Target Workers Unite, I think is the TWU. Um, so yeah, um, I think that there has been media coverage of it. We definitely covered these things a lot. Um, could there be more? Yes. Um, do we think the reason why the New York Times isn't covering it, or not the New York Times necessarily, but you know why this isn't a national story, is is because there isn't a formally recognized um, you know union here? Yes, I, I would agree. Um, I think you know I'm I'm not gonna say that I. Um, support one organizing method better than the other. I think in order to challenge Jeff Bezos' massive um, and sort of um, incredible power over so many aspects of our lives um, and by Jeff Bezos, I, sorry, I mean Amazon, um, we need both types of organizing, right? Like both types are important, both types are worthy of coverage. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm not here to make an argument about whether one or the other is better, but we need that. We need what groups like Athena are doing. Athena is a coalition of grassroots um, organizations, I believe only in the United States, um, who are challenging Amazon's power um, in sort of environmentalist groups, uh, antitrust groups, um, and labor organizing groups like the Awood Center, which is a worker center in Minneapolis that organizes Somali Amazon warehouse workers. Um, I think all three or all, all things are, are worthy of coverage here and are important here. Um, I think that uh, one of the maybe um, reasons why people are um, skeptical of this Amazonians United model, which is going without a union and just organizing around basic things like let's get water, which is what the Amazon workers in Chicago first did. That was like their demand when they first walked out and formed was like, let's get drinking water. It's really hot in these warehouses in the middle of the summer. Let's get like paid sick leave, um, which they ended up winning. Um, I think what people worry is that there aren't enough financial resources, right? Like, so um, without dues and without a formal union structure, whether that's, you know, one of the big national unions or um, a, a smaller one that, that you know, it collects dues, um, it's hard to um, put up a um, really robust fight 
against the largest corporate or the second largest employer in the United States and one of the most powerful corporations in the world. And so I think that is something um, that I don't, I, I can't personally comment on. I think that's just one of the, the reasons why maybe people are skeptical or hesitant, or maybe even don't like that model is like, because like, how can you, I mean, how, how much can you actually achieve without um, sort of more, how much can you achieve against when, when your opponent is Amazon without, without these sorts of resources? Edward has done a really good job um, essentially highlighting how uh, large tech firms have used multiculturalism as a way to blunt critique. So putting powerful people ranging from the Obamas with Netflix to former Lyft chief counsel Tony West uh, to California NAACP head Alice Huffman um, as spokesmen and women for the expansion of their monopolies that rely on the labor and exploitation of predominantly uh, black and brown workers. Um, for Amazon in Bessemer, did we see this same tactic? What was the propaganda that Amazon used against workers in Bessemer? And just as we've seen critics of, let's say, a company like Amazon or Uber, notably the author of Uberland, Alex Rosenblatt, who criticized Uber and then joined Uber, and I will let listeners infer why she would join Uber um, in capitalism. Uh, yeah, it's sad. But did, did we see any sort of former allies become consigliers of, of, uh, the Amazon, uh, of Amazon in terms of figuring out the best tactics to defeat this union? So did they bring in former union members as consultants? Um, so one, that, one part of that question is the multicultural aspect, just as we saw black and brown uh, voices being used in solidarity for the union. Did we also see this as propaganda uh, used against the union from local black uh, leaders? And did we see former critics of Amazon or former allies of unions switch roles in, uh, in an attempt to quash this unionization effort? So the multicultural aspect, well, so Amazon, um, you know, I, as people who are listening probably know, um, waged like a full on anti-union campaign, which was totally expected. Um, and they used a lot of the same tactics as employers have been using for, you know, hundreds of years, um, which include just like putting anti-union messaging all over the workplace, holding one-on-one -on -one meetings, um, holding large captive audience meetings, which are mandatory or compulsory union meetings, anti-union meetings during the workday, um, where, you know, the, the talking points are, um, you know, you're, you could lose money if you vote in the union or benefits, um, basically what you have could go away, um, talking about like the union as sort of a bureaucratic and, um, you know, uh, inefficient and um, self-serving 
outsider group um, that, you know, looking at the salaries of union officials, looking at well, one of the things they did in um, uh, in Bessemer was they, they brought out union contracts, RWDSU con union contracts for um, neighboring poultry plants that were significantly, where wages were significantly lower than they are in, in Amazon. Um, already and said, look, you could, you could actually lose money. And now this wasn't a, this was not a fair comparison because poultry is, you know, lower wage than warehouse work. Amazon is actually driving down wages in warehouse work, um, even with its $15 minimum, $15 an hour um, starting wage. Um, one of the things that they did though, on the multicultural thing was they brought in um, a lot of um, black um, anti, uh, what did they call it? Black union avoidance consultants. So um, a lot of the messaging, anti-union messaging was coming from Black people. Um, a lot of the, um, and, and you know, which maybe makes sense because, <laughs> or like I understand why they did that and that was smart because this warehouse, like we said, is 85% Black. It would be, um, it would have been very probably off-putting to workers if they brought in a bunch of white anti-union consultants. Um, some of those anti-union consultants actually were white, and I don't know if they were on the ground, but like you mentioned, they there was at least one woman who um, who <laughs> was a former union organizer. Um, I can't remember if she was SEIU or not, um, but these these forms that the government um, makes public that show like sort of who they've hired that they're. Who, who, what persuaders they've hired. There was one woman who was definitely um, a longtime union organizer, and I believe it was SEIU in Nevada, um, who they hired to, to work on this. Um, in terms of other things, I mean, the, the messaging was everywhere, right? So like if you're driving from Birmingham to Bessemer, there are billboards on the side of the highway that Amazon put up. Um, about this union drive that said vote now, I believe. Um, the, the radio and TV stations um, are sort of, uh, Amazon has bought out ads, not about the union drive, but just about how great their working conditions are. Um, and so, yeah, I think the, the campaign itself, I think a lot of people were um, maybe, maybe a lot of critics of the union were like, they should have um, sort of prepared for this better. Like we knew that we were up against the biggest company in the world and that they were going to be using all these tactics. It's not surprising that they, you know, threatened workers to, that they were going to leave if, if the union won or threatened mass layoffs or that they even got a stoplight changed outside of the warehouse. The timer changed so that organizers had less time. I think that um, the critics will say that Amazon, or sorry, that the union should have been better prepared for all of this stuff. Um, and that even with all this stuff going on, that they should have done a lot better in terms of votes. Um, I think it was 1,700 to 1,700 yes or no votes for Amazon um, to around 700 yes votes for the union. And that's not accounting for a number of um, uh, what are they called? Challenge ballots that were not counted. Um, um, but yeah, no, big picture. Um, I think the campaign um, was was pretty standard in terms of what big employers in the US do who are anti-union. Um, and and um, 
um, from Amazon's side, the, the rhetoric, or from both sides, really, the rhetoric sort of played into this multicultural um, aspect that you're, that you're talking about. Um, and, you know, I can't say how successful that was. I mean, obviously, um, the union busting campaign cumulative, cumulatively um, definitely had a, a powerful effect on, on, on workers. And just from talking to, to workers on the ground there, it just felt like, yeah, a lot of people were like, oh, everyone on my shift um, or everyone in um, that works with me is either not voting or voting no because they're afraid that Amazon is going to leave or they're afraid that they're going to lose their job or they, they think that their wages are going to to go down like that RWDSU contract with the poultry plant. So so this is powerful stuff that 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 really, I think, convinced a lot of people and and you know there's a whole industry around this that's like a 300 million dollar industry devoted to finding like sort of tried and true ways to to get people to vote no um and they use those tactics um and it and it worked so um the two keywords in this in case i get too muckle-mouthed would be tr- uh, internationalist and abolitionist i saw some of the workers holding signs in solidarity for striking workers in Myanmar, which is currently undergoing a military coup and uh, has used the fear of general strikes or strikes in specific sectors, very important, to uh, Myanmar's economy as one of the most effective tools against uh, the military coup there. Similarly, right now, one of the largest strikes, if not the largest strike in human history, is happening um, on the uh, streets of New Delhi as 200,000 uh, predominantly Sikh farmers are protesting against laws that would seek to brutally privatize um, their ability to exist independently and would seek to coerce them or force them um, through the laws of the marketplace to sell their land to large monopolies. I'm very interested in your thoughts about um, when we focus in the U.S. on labor laws, how did workers in Bessemer or through your own reporting, how do you see these issues in a more internationalist context? And then something I never see in these reports is I don't want to live in a world with Amazon. I don't want to live in a world with Uber. I don't want to live in a world with Facebook. And it always blunts some of my enthusiasm uh, for unions, which I think are one part of the equation, but it still leaves me wanting more, which is maybe a more abolitionist or Luddite vision of the world. I don't want these things. Um, So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how the workers saw themselves or how you see labor struggles at this moment uh, internationally, I haven't even mentioned the arrested uh, delivery driver Meng Ju, who is um, currently uh, being imprisoned for trying to organize gig economy uh, delivery drivers, food delivery drivers in China. But I don't see this talked about a lot. I see sort of a fetization of like one case, like we all become super excited about one thing. And I, I wish we could see ourselves as part of a bigger picture. So I was very interested to see the workers showing solidarity for Myanmar. Could you talk a bit about how they saw themselves internationally, how you see labor protests internationally? And then just as a PS, do workers also say, yeah, fuck Amazon. I wish I didn't have to work here and and maybe see themselves as part of a larger project of let's have a world without Amazon to begin with. 
to your first question, there's a very, uh, I believe the cover story of this month's in these times um, is about sort of Amazon and international, the Amazon organizing workers in an internationalist context. It just came out by uh, Luis Feliz Leon. Um, so I recommend that. Um, but uh, what can I say? Yeah, so um, I think that workers in, I mean, this is, this is a, you know, a decades long struggle, right? I, a lot of the labor movement in the United States um, uses uh, sinophobic or more generally xenophobic rhetoric to sort of build solidarity um, or to sort of, I mean, as they've seen their jobs go leave overseas often to, to China or maybe to Latin America, um, uh, there is a lot of racist xenophobic rhetoric that, that unions use um, that um, I think I mean, I, I didn't see that playing it all out at all on Amazon. The unique thing about Amazon, right, is that you can't you can't offshore an Amazon warehouse because the warehouses need to be close to where people live. So there are probably always going to be Amazon warehouses in the United States. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, from from what I saw and from what I heard, there was definitely an appetite for. Um, uh, turning this and turning the message into into a more or internationalist message, I guess. Yeah, the 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 Myanmar um, uh, posters that those two workers were holding, and then I believe there was a group of workers in Myanmar who were also holding um, solidarity posters with the workers in in Bessemer in Alabama. That was pretty cool. Um, there was also just messages coming in from Amazon workers or Amazon affiliated workers all over the world, uh, like Nigeria, Italy, um, I feel like every single continent. Um, and there's a group that formed in 2020, late 2020 under the, the name Make Amazon Pay. Um, this is a group of trade unions, warehouse workers and activists um, that coordinated a bunch of strikes and work stoppages and protests, I believe in India. Um, Bangladesh, uh, all over Western Europe, Poland, um, United States. Um, so I think these movements are definitely growing and building as Amazon grows. And um, there is a huge amount. I mean, Amazon, you know, is a company that has no borders. Um, so I think there's definitely like a lot of opportunity for, for more um, international solidarity and coordinated strikes and coordinated actions um, across the world. Um, you know, Amazon, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on, on sort of solidarity struggles or things like that, but um, just from my own reporting on Amazon's surveillance apparatus and, and sort of um, how they how they spy on workers, how they treat workers and worker organizing and unions as threats, that is all, you know, part of one, um, what they call the Global Security Operations Center that does all of that work, right? So it's all coordinated across the world. Um, and I think, you know, in order to push back against that, you need to have a, a coordinated response on the labor side. Um, you mentioned India. India is um, one of the countries that has the largest Amazon presence in the world. I think it's like 
almost 300 facilities they have now in India. So that is definitely something for people to, to pay attention to, um, especially, I guess, people who are trying to build these solidarity movements. And then they are expanding rapidly in, in uh, the Middle East um, and as well as uh, Brazil, I believe. So, so, so yeah, those are, those are things to pay attention to. Um, uh, your second question, do workers say fuck Amazon? Um, so some workers do, obviously, like a lot of workers um, that I, that I talked to in Bessemer um, sort of wish that there was a world without Amazon but at the same time you get a lot of older workers who are like you know Amazon could be great <laughs> I shop at Amazon every day uh, or not every day but every week that's where I do my shopping um and and it would just like just we need to they, we, we need to get a union in here so that the working conditions aren't so bad but like having sort of this very efficient, productive company to deliver all of our, our everything that we need is, is a good thing. So I think both opinions are in there, um, maybe more of the latter, um, just because, um, yeah, I don't know. I think you hear a lot from older workers that this is a good, I mean, just sort of, you got to, I guess the, the thing is like when you're, when you're talking to people who are on the ground in Alabama, right? Like, and in, in especially in this part of Bessemer, it used to have a lot of good paying jobs. And these are, you know, from companies that you've probably heard of, but a lot of steel and coal companies were there and those jobs left. And the, the area has been very economically depressed um, for years now. Um, and so I think people associate big companies coming in with you know, a better life for themselves. And so I, I don't know if it's necessarily at the at the stage of sort of an abolitionist thinking yet. I think that people really um, want, what people really want is, you know, stability um, and being treated with dignity at work. And so I think for them um, and, and just sort of for their communities, this means big companies coming in. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I guess beyond, I'm sure there's, there's, there's like a, a broader way for them to think about things beyond, beyond just Amazon and beyond these big companies coming in. They just had a Lowe's warehouse come in, a bunch of big, um, you know, warehousing, uh, warehouse, the warehouse wings of a bunch of big retailers have come into Bessemer recently. Um, and and the, the, the city government has expanded a lot of resources, getting these companies to come and giving them massive tax breaks, right? And I think that um, from what I hear on the ground, this is, this is something that people, this is something that people like because when they don't have that, there's, the times have gotten really hard. So, so they associate um, sort of Amazon with, with something better. It's just that when Amazon came in, they, the, the working conditions were not at all what they expected. It was like, this is way worse than the jobs we had before. Thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find you? And if you have any final thought, you can say it here. You can find my work on, if you just search my name on Google, Lauren Cowery Gurley. I mostly write for Vice. I, like I said, I work for Vice, um, occasionally write elsewhere. And my Twitter handle is at Lauren um, K Gurley, which is G-U-R-L-E-Y.